Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, continues in his series called Questions from Calvary. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that and more on our Brookwood app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Thank you for joining us again from your homes. I hope that you have your Bible and I hope that you've downloaded the message guide, including the outline, and we will conduct it as usual. You have your coffee in hand, although many of you drank coffee here in the services as well, so that's customary, but you get to watch in your pajamas. A few of you, I think, are wearing the same pajamas as last Sunday, so you might need to throw them in the wash. But we continue our series this morning called Questions from Calvary. A question often reveals the inner thoughts and the feelings of the person who poses the inquiry, as long as they're being sincere. So today we focus on two questions, the questions of two criminals who were crucified with Jesus. This message is entitled, An Illustrative Question, because questions do illustrate or they reveal the attitudes of the askers. The first question, and if you have your outline, it's listed there. One of the criminals scoffed. So, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us. The other question we'll consider this morning. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? Now, some background of this crucifixion. Of course, we're very familiar with it. But this story is told in Luke chapter 23. And in this Bible available at Brookwood, it's on page 849. And we will begin at Luke chapter 23 at verse 23. Two others, both criminals were led out to be executed with him. Now, this fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah 53 at verse 12. And these criminals, sometimes this word is translated thieves or robbers, but these weren't weren't pickpockets. They weren't petty criminals. They weren't common burglars. These were dangerous, violent men, men who tormented, who abused, and often even killed their victims. It's possible that these two were associates of Barabbas. Barabbas, as you know, was destined to be crucified. And the crowd cried out for him to be released and Jesus to be crucified instead. So Jesus actually replaced Barabbas in this crucifixion. And that's found in Luke 23, verses 18 through 25. So we continue. Luke chapter 23, and we're now at verse 33. When they came to a place called the Skull, Now, the skull in Greek is cranion, from which we get the word cranium. In Latin is calvare, and obviously we get the word calvary, or the English Golgotha comes from the same word. So when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. Now, we're unsure why this place was called the skull. 
It may have been that the formations in the limestone looked like the indentions of a skull, perhaps. It might be that it was just the place of death because executions were carried out there. And so we continue. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Now, I've been in this church. This place that's regarded as Calvary is inside a church, and it's actually inside the church of the Holy Sepulchre because the tomb is not far away. And there are three holes cut into a limestone hill. You can't tell it's a hill because it's actually under an altar. But you can see parts of the limestone. And the two holes on the outside are about 15 feet apart with one in the center. And it's interesting. I learned from visiting there how men could be repeatedly crucified in the same place. Because these Roman soldiers didn't use concrete and if you were continually raising and lowering a cross, the ground would become loose and, and it wouldn't support weight. But with limestone, these three holes were actually engineered in a rectangular fashion. And they were between 18 inches and two feet deep. So you could see how the upright timber, if it was sized correctly, could be used to crucify many, many people and thousands were crucified. Now, as we reflect on the words of these three crucified men, remember, suffering does not change us. Suffering only reveals us. As Jesus was crucified, he expressed forgiveness. At verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And this fulfilled again, Isaiah 53, 12. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, literally by casting lots. And in the Old Testament, casting lots was used as a way to discern God's will. But here, it's just a form of gambling to determine who gets Jesus' few items of clothing. And this fulfilled Psalm twenty-two eighteen. And what we see here is Jesus asked the Father to forgive the people who orchestrated his execution. Now, why ask the Father? Because all sin is against God. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. But he wasn't saying that these people were ignorant of their offense. When he said they don't know what they were doing, that wasn't the basis for forgiveness because ignorance of sin is never a basis for forgiveness. Certainly these two men and the crowd were ignorant of the enormity of their sin. They didn't truly understand that they were murdering God's very own son, the Messiah. But that did not in itself and by itself absolve them. Through this prayer, Jesus fulfilled his very own teaching about loving one's enemies. And that's found in Luke chapter 6. Jesus' soon to transpire death, you see, would provide the basis upon which those who crucified him could be forgiven, as are all who are sinners. And Jesus could have said this. I mean, what would you have said at the same time? 
I'm in pain. I'm in agony. I don't have much time to live. Leave me alone. But Jesus said nothing of the kind. Instead, he showed mercy. He asked for forgiveness for the very people who caused his agony. Why did he do that? Because Jesus was addressing not what they deserved, not their behaviors. He was addressing their needs because that is his nature. You see, Jesus' suffering did not change his nature or his identity, which included his calling and purpose. And it doesn't change ours either. Suffering merely shows who we truly are. So what's your attitude? What's your attitude toward your enemies, if you have any, your adversaries, perhaps even your competitors in business or in the office? What about people who just merely irritate you? How do you treat them? Because what your attitude is like reveals your identity. As Jesus was dying, he also experienced ridicule. And we see in verse 35, just the first part, the crowd watched. Now, apparently, this crowd gathered at the cross was silenced. Were they silent because they feared retribution of those, particularly the religious leaders that opposed Jesus? Maybe. Or were they silenced by their own guilt and they recognized the horror of what they had done. You see, these same people had called for the death of Jesus. These same people had cheered him a week before when on triumphal Sunday when he came into the city riding on a donkey and they cheered him as the Messiah and the King of David. And then later, less than a week later, they cried out for his crucifixion. In fact, Matthew 27 says those who were just walking by did continue to insult him. And then we look at another group in verse 35. The religious leaders. And the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. So these religious leaders who had asked the Romans to crucify him, since they didn't possess the power of capital punishment, they sarcastically insulted Jesus. But notice, they didn't say this to him directly. They were saying it to each other, perhaps even under their breath. So they mocked him quietly as cowards always do. And again, this fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. And then we look at the soldiers, beginning at verse 36. The soldiers mocked him too. But look how they did. You have to read this carefully. By offering him a drink of sour wine. Now this sour wine, or in other places it's called wine vinegar, was the ordinary soldier's drink. And they were sharing it with Jesus, not out of kindness, not from compassion, but as an expression of mockery. Well, how does this mock him? Well, think of it this way. 
why would you quench the thirst of a man who had, you had just lashed with a whip with strands tipped with lead and glass and pressed a crown of thorns into his head, piercing his scalp and had impaled him through the wrist and through the feet with spikes. So it's ironic that this same man who you've been inflicting so much suffering, so much pain, so much abuse, that now you would be concerned about his thirst. And in verse 37, they called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And again, this is sarcasm. They challenged him to step down off of that cross. Let's see you do it. And then we see what his offenses were in verse 38. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. And of course, that was written in derision. Then one of these criminals, who likely heard the mockery from the religious leaders, repeated his own ridicule. Here he's crucified as well, would soon die also, and yet he has enough anger in him to express contempt for the man beside him who is writhing in pain as well. And in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Again, this cruel sarcasm illustrates, reveals the true character of this criminal. Because you see, difficulty, problems, troubles, trials, or suffering does not change us. It reveals who we truly are. Right now, we're, we're, we're at least in an uncomfortable position. Some perhaps are suffering, others are worried, and perhaps some of you have grown ill which is suffering, of course. But how are we responding to the situation we're in? Are we speaking to God with more frequency, with more fervency? Has the good news come alive for us as our hope and our comfort? Or are we scurrying about, trying to, to prop up our savings account, worried about how we'll make a living, because you see, our resources have been stripped away from us. Those things that have comforted us by diverting our attention from the truly important eternal issues. We don't have sports, very few hobbies. You have TV, but on Hulu and Netflix, they just repeat the same movies. So you're even running out of things to watch. So look at yourself to see what's showing in this hour of stress. You know, Matthew 27, 44 tells us that it wasn't just one of these criminals, that it was actually both criminals who mocked and ridiculed Jesus. But then something supernatural happened to one of them. 
And as Jesus was suffering, he extended grace. One of these criminals experienced a change of heart, a change in mind, a difference in his thinking. And he even questioned the other. We see at verse 40, but the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? You see, this question clearly reveals a change had occurred. And as I said, Matthew tells us both of these criminals were ridiculing. So that would have been an even more stark reversal of attitude. This change of perception, which is what the Bible calls transformation, caused this condemned criminal to see his situation with totally different eyes. His question implies an understanding. An understanding that Jesus, this man who is dying, was connected to God. And he grasped that their mockery that was inflicted against this dying man who hung between them was actually offending God, who they would both face very soon. Now, perhaps he was even expressing concern for this other criminal. This, this might have been a warning of sorts saying, don't incur greater wrath or judgment. But to the other criminal's ears, they would have been shocking, surprising. And they might have even elicited anger. How could this happen? How could one of these criminals change in the last hours of his death, pinned to a cross? Only by grace. And we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this grace alone that saves us. This criminal merited no mercy, but neither do we. It's the way that he and all of us are saved. But when this criminal converted, he displayed very clear evidence of salvation. Again, he, he couldn't go anywhere and do good works. He was pinned to the cross, nailed to it for the duration of his life. The hours he had left were going to be fixed in time as he was connected to that cross. And yet, we see evidence of change. First, this criminal recognized his sin. Verse 41. We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that not many people will admit their wrongs. Especially someone who has lived a determined life to live by rebellion and to intentionally do wrong. You see, people who are, are living on the wrong side of the law and against God have in their minds justified that behavior. They've done it by blaming others or by excusing their evil actions, and they've done it for so long that their conscience are seared, and, and, and they either think they're innocent, or at least they believe that they're no more guilty than anybody else by comparison. 
But the Holy Spirit convicted this criminal of his wrongs. And the Holy Spirit also confirmed Jesus' innocence. How could he have known that? He hadn't followed Jesus around for the past years of Jesus' life or even the three years of Jesus' ministry. He could only know it by revelation from the Holy Spirit. You see, when the Spirit gave him birth, just as when the Spirit gives us new birth, we get new eyes. And suddenly we can recognize and confirm truth. And suddenly we can realize our sins. And the weight and the burden of this realization forces us, propels us to confess our sins, to turn from them, which is repentance, and to cry out for mercy, which means seeking forgiveness. Another evidence of the criminal's salvation was he realized Jesus' identity. And he said at verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why would he say that? How could he know? Jesus didn't look like a divine being. Jesus wasn't speaking scripture. Jesus wasn't trying to convince these men of his identity. And what he displayed was a man on verge of death. In fact, Jesus was more exhausted, more depleted than the two criminals beside him. You see, Jesus would die after six hours on the cross. But many victims lived for days. The true identity of Jesus as God's son had to be revealed supernaturally from one who knows him intimately and truly, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals his identity to us. And once we know who he is, we can never deny it. There's a change in our thinking and it changes our lives. The third evidence of the criminal's salvation was he received eternal life. In verse 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. My, what comforting words. Imagine how this criminal felt. Now, again, without revelation, he would just think, well, this man between us has lost his mind. But by revelation, he knew that he was promised a place in heaven. Now, theologians debate whether paradise is another name for heaven or is it some intermediate holding place? Now, if you have a Catholic background, this is not the same as purgatory because as you know, purgatory is a place of suffering equal with hell, but for a limited time. This passage says that Jesus will be in paradise. 
I don't know about you, but that's where I would want to be. And he told this thief that this very day, you'll pass with me into paradise. The saved criminal had done nothing and could do nothing to deserve forgiveness. He only had one qualification for forgiveness. His need. And he recognized his need. And you know in John 9 it says only the sick need a doctor. You know what this tells us if I summarize this whole message this morning is that there are no hopeless cases. There is no time while life continues that you've had your last chance. We can all be forgiven and spend eternity with Jesus. Have you been saved? Have you been forgiven? And do you display evidence of your salvation just like this criminal on the cross did? Romans 10 tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there are some conditions in that. It means if you call on him, not just the name of Jesus, because you know that name, but when you call on him as Lord, that means he has become Lord. And again, by revelation. And by the Spirit, you recognize your sins. You realize Jesus' identity. You're born again, which means you receive eternal life. This can happen to you right now, right where you're sitting. Perhaps you're even still laying in bed. That's an appropriate place as well. Call on the name of the Lord so you can be saved this moment. And then will you let us know? You know, the church is still functioning. We're not all gathered in this room, but we're all gathered by the Spirit And listening to his word. If you're watching on our website, there are options below me. Ways that you can connect with us. You can request prayer. And you can give. And on social media, these options are available in comments. I want to thank you, church, for continuing to give. As we continue to serve. We're still meeting financial needs both in families within our church, but also in the community. And we're supporting mission partners throughout the world whose needs have not diminished and may have actually increased as illness is striking them as well. And we're continuing to support Brookwood Ministries and seeking to continue to pay our employees. So I thank you for your generous giving during this time. Talk to God. Ask him to guide you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no hopeless case. And Lord, move in each of us, confirming our salvation. That if we have never been born again, I pray that you right now would cause us to recognize and confess our sins that you would 
confirm the identity of Jesus and that you would call us into eternal life. In your blessed Son's name we pray. Amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives and many other resources on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.